sure, you could aimlessly scroll through LinkedIn during your nine to five. Don't worry, we won't tell your boss. Or instead, you could find the most coveted jobs on the girl boss job board. Whether you're seeking your dream role or dream employee, we've got you covered. We're kind of like matchmakers that way. Head to jobs.girlboss.com to discover the hottest gigs in marketing, cannabis, finance, social media, and more. That's jobs.girlboss.com. Hello, this is Girl Boss Radio with me, Avery, your host. I'm the founder and CEO of the workplace design consultancy, Bloom. As your host, I'm on a mission to bring you real, useful career advice through candid conversations with some of the world's most impressive women. Today, I'm joined by Lisa and Lori, two of the four authors behind The No Club, putting a stop to women's dead-end work. I think this book should be required reading for any woman entering the workforce. And to managers listening, a possible anecdote to quiet quitting. In study upon study, Lisa and Lori found that women get disproportionately asked to take on tasks that inevitably go unrewarded, leaving women overcommitted and underutilized as men have more time to focus on work that gets them ahead. That's why they started the original No Club, a means to empower women to decline tasks that don't serve their careers and a way to question existing systems that hold us back. So if you wanna learn how to say no at work, Maybe you're tired of always having to be the one to plan the office holiday party. Keep listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Girl Boss Radio. Lisa and Lori, your book absolutely blew my mind. We are so excited to have you. You are our first three-person episode that we've done, and probably I think the only one we'll do this season. I have to say, so I was reading through your book, The Say No Club, And if I could go back to my 15-year-old self, I would give myself three recommendations. One would be to read The No Club before I enter the workplace. The second would be to invest in some sort of cryptocurrency. (laughs) And the third would be to not date a guy named Abe that I meet when I'm 20, but we're not going to get into that. (laughs) 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 So either way, I believe that your book is required reading for anyone entering the workplace. And I would just love to kind of understand what inspired you to write this book. So about 12 years ago, we and three of our other friends all found ourselves in a position where we were working insane hours and being really busy, getting up early in the morning, staying late at night in the office, working on weekends. would meet once a month uh, to talk about what it was that we were spending so much time on and how, why we were taking on more and more work and not seeming to carve out time for what was really our core jobs. So we formed what we ended up calling a no club because we all found it so incredibly hard not to take on all these requests that we're getting from everyone. So about 12 years ago, we met at this union grill that is positioned between the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon. I'm from the University of Pittsburgh. Everyone else was from CMU and we would meet there both because it was a convenient place to meet, but also because they had ridiculously cheap wine. So we would get a bottle of wine for $10 and we spent many $10 bills just sitting and talking about and supporting one another to sort of try to get our work life into control. Yeah, I love that. And in the first chapter, you share a story about five women gathering around a table, two bottles of wine. 
And one of the women comes forward and says, I need help. I'm overwhelmed with work and I want to say no, but I feel like I can't. And I know that there's a lot of folks listening right now that really connect with that statement, whether it be at work or at home or in their personal lives. I know that this is something that a lot of us struggle with. So initially it was dedicated to women to talk about how y'all just could not stop working. And in your book, you actually share an interesting quote and it's a ton of feathers still weigh a ton. For folks that haven't read the book yet, what does this quote mean to you? As we work day to day and people come to your door and ask you to help or serve on a committee or review a presentation, it's all these little things that we get asked to do. Any one of these tasks for us is not a big deal, but they really started building up. And we started losing track of each individual one as we were accepting the next. And so over time, it really, it grew and it grew to the point that, you know, as Lisa said, we were working incredibly long hours, but not necessarily on things that we needed to do or really wanted to do. And that's where it started to become a real problem. You then go on to define these tasks and this work as non-promotable tasks. And in the conversation, just for folks listening, I might interchangeably refer to these things as non-promotable work or MPTs. What are some examples of non-promotable work or MPTs as you call them throughout the book? So NPTs are assignments that help out your organization, but doesn't help out your career. So you could think about it as Laurie gave some examples before, but helping out a colleague, resolving a conflict within the office. It could be onboarding. There's a great recent study that was done by McKinsey and Lee Nen, where they surveyed over 400 different organizations to sort of get a sense of what is the work that we want our leaders to be engaged with. One of the things that 90% of the organizations thought was critical for their leaders to be engaged with was checking in on employee well-being. So 90% of organizations thought that this was really important work to have their leaders do. And yet when they were asked whether or not they recognized this work, the answer was 25%. Wow. The same thing happened when they were asked about diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was work that was seen as critical for the organization, and yet there was no recognition. So when we talk about NPTs, we're talking about a very large set of tasks that really keep all the wheels going. It's what makes the organization a pleasant place to be, and it really keeps revenue growing as well. It's just that you don't get any recognition for it. So sort of the characteristics that we have of NPTs is first that it's not directly linked to the organization's mission. So if you're in a for-profit firm, it would be non-revenue generating work. It tends to be invisible and it tends to be work that doesn't require any unique skills. So it's a very large set of tasks and it's a set of tasks that we certainly found that we're spending a lot of time on. And it really differs from job to job what those non-promotable tasks are. Well, there's a set of them that we can all identify with, like throwing an office party or the birthday celebration, the off-site events or field trips you know, that we may go on. But, you know, in my job, it's often committee work. It's so many oversight committees and sitting in on committees that really don't draw off of what I was hired to do. You know, I'm hired to do teaching and research, and yet I'm sitting on committees to design a new building. Again, you know, kind of there's a gap there. Totally. And when I was reading your book, I was overwhelmed with flashbacks to party planning, office planning, <laughs> being an unemployed resource groups, which I, which I love to do. And I think that because I've worked in HR and talent for so long, 
that was kind of in, inherently a part of my job. So I wasn't really thinking about myself, but I was thinking about all the people that I looped in along the way, where there were engineers or um, they were, you know, designers or they were, um, you know, strategists or sales folks it had nothing to do with their job. Uh, and, and I think that this is something that a lot of organizations inherently benefit from. Uh, and I think that it's leading to a lot of the strain that people are feeling today. We're going to get into the conversations about like quiet quitting and everything later on. So one, one thing that you framed out in the book that I really appreciated was that um, MPTs don't just exist specifically in office jobs. Yeah, one of my favorite stories that we heard was from the hairdresser, the hairstylist, who was invited to help out in her job in terms of redesigning the workspace, right? It took away from her time actually servicing clients, but at the same time, it was important to the organization. Where there was the bartender who was constantly asked to help onboarding new bartenders and servers. And we see it a lot in, there are a number of very impressive research studies that have looked at supermarket clerks where women are more likely to be at the checkout counter because, you know, it seems more suitable for them, but that means they don't get the experience of being in the rest of the store. This large study of TSA agents where women are doing more of the pat downs, which means that they don't get the full experience so can't get promoted. There's a very recent study that came out on retail where female managers are more likely to get assigned sort of the least revenue generating store. There's some work that is valued more than other work. So while you may still be the manager of a store, if you're the manager of the store that brings in the least amount of revenue, or if you're doing the work that is less important or less valued than what other employees are doing, then it is effectively non-promotable for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that what was interesting is when you all developed this club in community with one another to support each other initially, and it evolved into something much bigger, you actually started practicing building the muscle of saying no more. And when you actually did that, you actually came across a really interesting discovery. And that was that the task just went to other women. Why do you think that women take on more non-promotable tasks and work than men do? We did a lot of studies to try to figure this out because, you know, we were all academics. One of the early studies we did was with a professional services firm where they had very careful account of the hours that their employees were spending. And we found in this organization that women were spending 200 more hours on non-promotable work per year. So that's a full month of work that goes unrecognized and unrewarded. And it turns out that spills over to lots of other professions. It's in engineering, it's for architects, it's for consultants, it's everywhere. Among lawyers, women are doing more pro bono work in academia, it's the same. But the key question is exactly the one you're asking. It's like, why are women doing so much more of this non-promotable work? Why is it happening everywhere? And what we saw in our research is that women are not doing more of this work because they really love it. It's not because they're really, really good at it. The reason why women are doing more of this work is because we all expect them to take this on. So because we all have this collective expectation that women are going to be doing this work, we're going to be more likely to ask them. We show that women are asked 44% more than men. And when we ask them, they're much more likely to say yes. So we get this very unfortunate expectations that women are going to say yes to the work. So we ask them more. And when we ask them, they confirm those beliefs and say yes. So our research sort of very nicely identifies expectations as being one of the key drivers 
to why it is that women are doing this work. And that finding is critical because it suggests that organizations are making mistakes. We shouldn't give work to employees just because they're least reluctant to take it on. We should give it to the employees who are best at doing the work. So that finding is really central to why we wrote the book, because it really is showing not just that women are in a bind because they can't just say no, but also that organizations should be interested in fixing this because they're making mistakes. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is that this works by design. There's a subconscious, almost stereotype that we have that women are the helpers. You know, it comes perhaps from our beliefs about social roles at home and transferring them to the workplace. When we think about who to ask, subconsciously a woman might come to mind because that's the stereotype of who the helper is. Or sometimes we just ask people that say yes. When we expect them to say yes, it's the path of least resistance. It's a lot easier to go to someone who we know is going to say yes subconsciously. Yeah. So whose job is it to solve the problem of women taking on non-promotable tasks at work? I think everybody has a role to play. Women have a role to play. Men have a role to play. Leaders have a role to play. And organizations have a role to play. There's many different ways we can attack this problem. And many of the solutions are relatively low cost. They're not hard to do. I'll just start with the first one. What we think about, as Lisa pointed out, there's this fundamental expectation that drives us both to say yes and to volunteer. And if we know that women are more likely to volunteer because of this dynamic, let's stop asking for volunteers, right? Move to other approaches like turn-taking. I certainly agree that we all have a role. But at the end of the day, it really has to be up to the organizations to do this. Because we have such strong expectations for women to take on this work, it means that it's much harder for them just to say no. If you ask women, what do you feel when you think about saying no? The number one emotion that comes up is guilt. And the reason why they feel guilty is because they know the work isn't going to get done if they say no. So that's different from a woman than it is for a man because of these expectations that we hold. So women are going to feel much worse when they say no, but they are also going to get a very different response when they say no. There's this beautiful study by Heilman and Chen where they have people read one of three stories. One is a manager asking someone to help and saying yes. The other one is a manager asking someone to help and they say no. And they're assessed on whether or not you want to hire them. If it's a woman, a woman who says yes is, of course, seen as being better than a woman who says no. But a woman who says yes is seen as being equivalent to someone who was never asked at all. So that means if you say no, you're going to be treated much worse than if you were never asked. Lo and behold, when they do the exact same study over men, it turns out that a man who says no is seen as being equivalent to a man who was never asked at all. So there's a big boost if you're a man and you say yes, and there is a punishment to a woman if she says no. And that really means that women can't just control this themselves. So, you know, where Lori is absolutely right is that we all have a role to play because we can all become one another's allies and try to push our organization to change this. And until they change, make sure that we help one another out so that it isn't on Lori to say no, but I can instead say Lori did it last time. Why don't I take it on this time? And then maybe John and Sam can take it on the two times after that. So we become allies and remove that pressure that each individual feels when they are put in a position where the only way to really get out is to say the very dangerous word, which is no. 
Absolutely. And I think that shame plays a very powerful role in how we navigate our careers, specifically when we're within a workplace where there's a significant power imbalance between an individual contributor and perhaps your boss or your manager or your boss's boss's boss. And we're always trying to navigate around how we're perceived by others, right? Whether we're agreeable, whether we're being nice, if we're a team player, if we're part of the family, if you will, all these tropes, right? And what I loved about your book is you make it crystal clear that women are not the problem. And that in order to see change behaviors, we need systemic change at an institutional level. Did you know that 97% of women aren't getting the recommended amount of essential nutrients they need through their food alone? Well, not anymore. Get your daily dose of vitamins and omega-3s with Big Little Bar, the modern-day multivitamin. In one delicious chocolate cranberry bar, you'll support the health of your brain, heart, hair, skin, and nails. Use code GIRLBOSSRADIO for your first week free. That's 25% off the first month for subscribers. Or try the sample pack for just $10. Head to BigLittleBar.com. That's BigLittleBar.com. Use code GIRLBOSSRADIO and say goodbye to boring supplements forever. Offer available for a limited time only. You are listening to my chat with the founders of The No Club. Let's get back into it. For managers listening who have the power to make systemic changes at work and who can make evolutions to the way that they actually manage the distribution of tasks, What are some things that they could potentially implement today? So if you take one step further than this idea of random assignment or taking turns, you can think more strategically about matching people to the non-promotable tasks that are best for them. We do differ in terms of our interests and our skill sets. So let's, in redistributing non-promotable tasks, think about what's best for the individual and what will bring fulfillment to them. So, and because we're all so different from one another, that should cover a good 80% of what's out there. There's always going to be something that nobody wants to do. And those are the tasks to look at and say, maybe this is the wrong level to even be thinking about them. But let's move them to another set of people whose roles better align with those tasks. And it becomes promotable for them. I love that. And I think that, I mean, we talk a lot about this uh, via my consultancy, Blue. Our ethos is really centered around, you know, building work that works for everyone and taking an individual approach to non-promotable tasks. Is it a brilliant idea? This is something you could do at the onboarding stage of a new employee to say, hey, what are some things that you're interested in that are connected with our, you know, core values that you would like to participate in? And maybe there is like almost like a list that people can self-select from in the early days. You can just do a check-in every four months or annually where you can kind of see if those interests have shifted or evolved. But I love that idea. It's such a great suggestion. So for folks listening, if you're a manager, that's something you can literally do today. Just as a start, just bringing awareness to this issue that all work isn't created equally, right? Right now, many of the people we're spoken to, people don't have the same information about what is promotable and non-promotable in the organization. So just starting that conversation, I think is number one, be brave enough to look at who's doing that work. And then very systematically go in and think about how is it that we're allocating this work? Where is it that we're making mistakes? And then move on to say, are we rewarding the things that we really are intending to reward? And sometimes non-promotable work is really hard to reward, but then at least setting up clear expectations for how much non-promotable work each employee should be doing 
And this is not to say that everybody should be doing the same, but without clear expectations about how much non-promotable work you should be doing, you're going to end up with these very, very unfair distributions that ultimately implies that you're not going to be able to identify this true skills for the employees that you have. So um, it's coming in on both sides, both in terms of allocating and rewarding. Yeah. So for me, I've worked at a lot of different startups in the past, and I currently am building my own startup. And I know that in some ways, non-promotable tasks can contribute to someone's success at work. I'm curious, do you believe that this is possible? We're all about warm nuance here at Girl Boss. I'm curious, is this a possibility or are non-promotable tasks completely just like never going to contribute to a woman's success at work? You know, the, the definition of a non-promotable task is one that doesn't advance your career. So I think what you're saying is let's take things that, think about things that someone might think about as a non-promotable task and turn it into a promotable task. And the best way to make that change is to look back to the mission and vision of the organization. You know, many of our organizations, including yours, I think, values diversity, equity, inclusion, and belongingness. But as Lisa pointed out, many organizations don't reward it, don't reward those efforts. But boy, are they important to the organization culture and to the success of all employees. Absolutely. So if we can take that work, elevate it to the level of rewarding it, it now is promotable and it's built in and baked into the culture of the organization. So we're walking the talk. And that's what I love about especially organizations that are newer and grassroots and you have an opportunity to shape the culture in terms of the way you want it to be based on your value system. And thinking about what's promotable and not promotable is a necessary first step. So at Growboss, we're all about defining success on our own terms. How can women listening say no more while still moving towards their definition of success in their careers? I think it is very hard for women to say no, especially if they're at a very junior level. The one thing that we have found is a more effective no is one that gives a quick explanation because most people don't actually know what you're not going to be able to do if you take on this assignment and then solves the requester's problem by pointing to someone else. Really thinking about what is it that the requester is trying to do. They're trying to solve a problem and you may know how to better do that. Another option is to say yes, but negotiate that yes. And I think for junior employees, that might be the more effective strategy because you're not going to be seen as a naysayer. So if you get asked to take on a new assignment, one option is to offload another assignment that is non-promotable. So maybe you take on a committee assignment and get rid of the holiday party committee. Or maybe you make sure that you only do it this one time so that you don't get stuck doing the assignment, so that you push turn-taking leading up, or you are more strategic in sort of negotiating for an even bigger assignment. So if you're asked to be on, say, the website committee, asked to be on the executive committee, asked to be on the hiring committee. So sort of negotiating up so that you're seen as somebody who really wants to contribute, but you end up getting the better assignment. So the intriguing thing when we talk about these non-promotable tasks, and it sort of goes back to the question that you had before is, that there are some tasks that are indirectly promotable in the sense that they can connect you to the right people. They can give you skills that you can use, use later on. So there are returns to non-promotable work either because it really means something to you 
or because it can get you connections and skills that you can use later. But many of those connections and skills are going to sort of diminish if you get stuck doing the work. So putting time limits on how long you're doing the work so that you get the, the benefits from the assignment and move on, I think is one of the ways that you can sort of get to how you define success yourself. But certainly, everybody has to do non-promotable work. If diversity, equity, and inclusion really matters to you, make sure that that's the non-promotable work that you're doing. So defining your own success and where you want to spend your time, I think you can steer towards that work and say, you know, you put me on the website committee, that's great. I really think I have more to offer on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Could I perhaps do that instead? Yeah. And I love the suggestion about negotiations because I do think that if you are part of an employee resource group for DEI, what I've observed is that employees are now asking for compensation for their contributions, especially if the organization has been outwardly vocal about their commitments to DEI, building an inclusive workplace, and maybe they don't necessarily have someone in-house that's actually leading that work. This isn't to say that you should negotiate for a pay raise every single time you're doing non-promotable tasks, but I do think that there's opportunities. And I mean, your book really does carve this out really well, where you talk about how if it connects back to the currency within the organization, which is something that pushes the organization financially forward, et cetera, et cetera, that this is a great opportunity for folks to potentially evolve that non-promotable task, something that they could perhaps get compensated for or could get a raise for. I want to push a little bit back on trying just to get more salary. Because while that is sort of a short-term reward that makes it feel really good, what ultimately is going to get you the promotion is not the salary increase. It's the fact that you have time to do the work that is most valued within the organization. So limiting the amount of time you spend on the work that isn't seen as critical to the organization is really the only way that you're going to get the promotion that ultimately will get the outside offers and the much larger salary increases. Every day, we're seeing more and more conversations about quiet quitting. And I think that your book, essentially to me, is a great antidote. I think it's the reason why people are quiet quitting is because of the MPTs that are weighing on specifically on when we're seeing women leaving the workplace in droves from the start of the pandemic. I'm curious. Do you believe that the pandemic and the shift to remote work made MPTs better or worse? So on the one hand, it made the invisible work that is part and parcel to non-promotable tasks even more invisible. So no one can see that extra effort you're putting in or these tasks that are done behind the scenes. We're not bumping into each other in the hallways. We're not watching each other organize the events. So things are disappearing. We're also unable to see the visible work or the promotable work that other people are doing or the opportunities that are being put forth to other people because we're all working remotely. On the other hand, there are some non-promotable tasks that have fallen off the table. They're just not happening. We are getting together less. There is somewhat of a decrease in some of the social events and the social glue that holds us together. But I think on whole, it's troubling and it could exacerbate the problem. So back to quiet quitting, there's been a lot of conversations around how organizations can prevent their employees and team members from quiet quitting. So what are your thoughts on quiet quitting and the role that MPTs have to play with that? 
I think the quiet quitting is a sign that people are scaling back to what is the core job that I was hired to do. I may be going around and turning off the light in my department every single night. I may be the one who cleans up the lunchroom. I may be the one who's helping out the student who needs help at that last moment. But if I'm doing far more of all this work than my colleagues and I'm getting no recognition for it, people are starting to scale back because they have been leaning in, giving it all they possibly could to become these successful employees. And they're realizing that a lot of the things that they've been picking up to become sort of these super employees is getting no recognition. So I think there's a very strong connection between women's excessively large load of non-promotable work and them saying, enough is enough. I am working my butt off. And it's not that I'm quitting my job. It's not that I'm not going to do the things that I was hired to do. I'm just going to focus like everybody else's on the work that is getting rewarded and recognized. And that's exactly where we need to step in and start saying, we may not be able to make all work promotable, but at least we should recognize the non-promotable work and say, we have a certain expectation for how much time you should spend on this. And if you are shirking over and over, I don't care how much promotable work you're going to do, you're not going to get a satisfactory performance review. So until we begin to recognize the work that's being done. I think we're going to see more and more people, certainly with the labor market it is right now, engaging in quiet quitting because if you're spending an entire month per year on work that goes unrecognized, at some point you're going to say, you know what? I also just want to get billable hours. Yeah, that makes good sense. So I know that the research on MPTs is still in its infancy. How do different subsets of women experience the impact of non-promotable tasks at work. One study found, for example, that it was a study of faculty. It's easy for us to study ourselves, I suppose. But what they found was that faculty of color spent an average of three hours more on service per week than their white faculty peers. So this was not just women. This were all faculty of color versus not. There's also a study of women in tech which showed that women of color reported doing more behind-the-scenes work as compared to white women. And this difference was especially strong for Asian women. So, you know, we're starting to get some research that at least compares how much time and the types of work that people are doing on different subsets of women. But I think a major difference, though, is this, or a thing to consider is this issue of cultural taxation. When we look at women of color at the intersection, oftentimes they get doubly taxed because they're asked to do this work because they're female. And they're also asked to do this work because they're representing an underrepresented group. So if we only have, you know, 10% of women of color in the organization, but we'd like a woman of color on every committee, those subset of women are going to be asked over and over again. So this cultural taxation dynamic comes into play as well. So what can white women do to individually engage or collectively engage in acts of allyship to redistribute MPTs so it doesn't disproportionately fall on racialized women at work. Women also need to be allies of one another. And what the research clearly shows to date is that women of color are getting the lion's share of this non-promotable work. And the benefit of becoming allies of one another among women is that we, just like I suggested before, that we can help remove the pressure on the individual so that when Lori is being voluntold 
at the next meeting that somebody else can say, you know, I know Lori's working on the new product launch. I really think that's where she should be spending her time. She also did the last holiday party. How about if I take this one? How about if we start taking turns? But what unfortunately happens with the current system is that we come in, we ask for somebody to take on an assignment that nobody wants to do. And somebody is reluctantly volunteers or is being pointed out as the person who is natural to take it on. And the rest of us wipe our foreheads and say, phew, it didn't come to me this time and we feel relief. We need to get past that stage and say, it cannot go to the same people over and over. We want everybody to have the same opportunity to demonstrate their skills. And that's not going to happen unless we start speaking up for one another. So next time you go into that meeting and you find relief when the same person once again is taking on the assignment, be brave enough to stand up and say, this isn't right. And that's precisely where we wrote the book, hopefully to get the men to become our allies, but we should all be allies of one another. And in particular, now that we know that being female of color is going to give you even more non-promotable work, we should at least start by fixing that problem. Within workplaces, there are people that just inherently hold more power and privilege than others, right? There is this obvious power dynamic that's at play always. Ultimately, we can't really say it's on everyone. Eventually, we do need to see I'd say more energy and more attention from people that are from the dominant group, aka white, het, cis, non-disabled folks, to act in solidarity and in acts of allyship on behalf of, right? And this is a big part of being an ally. I agree with you, but I also just want to be super clear that from a DEI lens, I think it's important that white women in this case do their part. Lean in, if you will. (laughs) Your point is very well taken. And it does not work if we put the burden on everybody because we know how that goes and nothing is going to happen. Totally. People are going to set those boundaries. And I think that on that same vein, every single episode, we have an Ask a Girl Boss question. And the question that a community member sent in for the both of you was, what do you do when you're told you have to pick up the tasks of someone who quit? What's your response to this? When that happens, it's a manager's response to saying, I don't know how to solve this problem, so I'm just going to shift it to somebody else. I think in the short term, we do want to be team players and help out when the manager's kind of left in the lurch. And so I think a short-term strategy is to be able to pitch in. At the same time, there's a conversation to be had about what's the long-term plan It's a hard time now for organizations to start doing a a lot of hiring, even if they want to, because the labor market's so tight. So I think managers need to be very thoughtful in terms of how they distribute that work to those of us who remain. What does being a girl boss mean to you? It's so much about being true to your own power, recognizing what you bring to the table and owning it. I think making the world easier for all these women who are entering the labor market with tons of aspirations and talent and working hard to create an environment where they can take those talents and reach the potential that they were intended to have. I love that. No more ladder pulling and making room for more of us. I love that. Thank you so much, Lori and Lisa, for joining us today. I know that everyone is going to be racing off to either download or purchase your book. I want to reiterate again, I think it is required reading for anyone entering the workforce. So, and this is not sponsored or anything. I just think people 
more women need to read this book and to understand the dynamics that are taking them away from work that will lead them into defining success on their own terms faster. So with that said, where can we find you? Where can folks kind of follow up with you, learn more about the work that you're doing, keep in touch? I think our webpage is probably the best page and it's thenoclub.com. It has all the articles that have been written about our work. It talks about all the events that we're doing. So if we're near you and you want us to come give a talk, let us know. You can send us an email there as well. So I think going to thenoclub.com is the easiest place to reach us. Perfect. Love it. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Our pleasure. Thanks so much for having us and sharing your thoughts and giving us the opportunity to share ours. Thank you for listening to my chat with Lisa and Lori. I truly hope this episode left you feeling more informed and empowered to say no to non-promotable tasks at work. So as you know, I am very new to this. And as the new host of Girl Boss Radio, I really could use your help. Please make me look good to my new boss. Your five-star review would go a long way. On that note, this podcast is produced by Liz Cooper and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.